You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, the EV-focused The Driven and One Step Off The Grid. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Charles, I'm as well as I was last time we talked. Uh, and uh, uh, good. <laughs> it, it did seem like uh, just a couple of, if, if it did seem like a couple of days ago, it was because it was just a couple of days ago. But Sunday um, when we're recording, this is the day that South Australia um, finally announced the uh, winning or the preferred tenderers of its hydrogen jobs plan, its um, bold initiative to have what will be, and this is overrun by another project, the biggest, world's biggest hydrogen electrolyzer, 250 megawatts, and the world's biggest hydrogen gas plant, 200 megawatts in Wyala. And I seize the opportunity to speak to the Energy Minister, Tom Kutzentonis. Tom Kutzentonis, uh, State Energy Minister for South Australia, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you, Giles. Good to be with you again. Yes, indeed. Um, it's been a few years since you, you were last on this uh, podcast, but today, uh, a Sunday, you've got a major announcement. It's um, It's been some time in the making. It's for the Hydrogen Jobs Plan, and it's for well, quite a bold plan, really, a 250-megawatt electrolyzer, green energy electrolyzer in Wyala, plus a 200-megawatt green hydrogen power plant, both of which kind of the, going to be the biggest in the world if they were built now. Um, tell us more about it. Well, our aspirations are, I've got to say, pretty bold in decarbonisation. South Australia quite proudly prides itself as sort of leading the nation, if not the globe, on our decarbonisation push. What we're attempting to do here is prove up that you can produce grid-scale hydrogen to operate grid-scale generators that operate as a form of battery. That is, we're producing hydrogen that has other applications as well as just being energy producing. So I accept that there are some people who might be cautious about it as just solely as an energy source. But my view is we're overproducing renewable energy now. Um, That overproduction is leading to either export interstate, and when that's at capacity, we basically turn it off. And I think that's just completely an unjustifiable solution. So what we've decided to do is invest our money to try and prove up that electrolysis at grid scale can be done effectively and cheaply with the overproduction of renewable energies. And then you can use that energy to firm renewable energy into the grid because what we're all paying for through higher power prices isn't renewable energy, it's the gap. And the gap is becoming more and more expensive the smaller and smaller it gets because that unserved energy that sits there idle wanting to get a return from its investors, when it does operate, operates very expensively. So when a gas-fired generator that might have, say, 20 years ago operated at a capacity factor of you know, 80 to 90%, is now operating at a capacity factor of maybe 2 to 5%, they're trying to extract that same amount of rent over a smaller period of time. So what we're trying to do is break the back of that and prove up that hydrogen actually can be that gap and can fill that gap and can do so without emitting carbon. 
it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think just this weekend, I think there's a statistic came out that South Australia produced or was, able, or was capable of producing 264% of its de demand from wind and solar. And of course, most of that was curtailed, large scale solar in particular, but also wind. So this new electrolyzer that will be built in Wyatto, that'll actually be able to soak up some of that capacity. And in turn, the, the, the hydrogen gas generator will be able to fill in those demand peaks in the evening. That's right. And the, what the nature of the grid is that we can soak up that demand, but when we're dispatching back in, we're not dispatching back in like um, an ordinary gas-fired turbine or coal-fired power station trying to extract a rent back for sunk costs over a, over a, a one-year pr program. What we'll be doing is, because it's government-owned, we'll be, we'll be dispatching into the system at our marginal cost, at our marginal cost in return. So we'll be seeing downward pressure on prices, that's certainly, that's certainly going to change the dynamics of the market, isn't it? Well, we have to. We have to. Because what's happening is is that the, the energy market is... The, the gas-fired power stations are still making the same money they were making 20 years ago. They're just operating over a shorter period of time. So they have to charge more over that shorter period that they're operating to make the same amount of money, which pushes up prices. So, so, so how do you imagine this green hydrogen power plant to operate? Will it be like a peaking plant, sort of operating 1%, 2 3% a year or something like that? Yeah, it'll, it'll operate just like a peaker. We'll, we'll sell our services in the wholesale market as a firming option. We won't be selling it to someone who doesn't want to firm anything other than renewable energy, so you can't use it to back up your gas-fired generator or your coal-fired generator. It can only be used to firm renewable energy. That'll be a policy decision of the South Australian government, so we're very clear about that. And two, my aspiration about renewable energy is that currently the plan is to overbuild the amount we have and displace the existing generators that we have, which means new transmission lines, new substations, new distribution lines, new plant. That's all great. But if we can actually show that Baker Huge or, or General Electric or any other turbine manufacturer Mitsubishi Heavy Industries can operate a gas turbine that operates entirely on hydrogen, that means you can augment your existing ones potentially. And if you can augment your existing ones, the cost of the transition then drops dramatically. So uh, hydrogen power plants, 100% hydrogen, is that technically feasible? Because we've been hearing about it and we kind of here, I mean, I think the curry curry generator in the Hunter Valley, which is being built by snow, they said, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Only 30% hydrogen, but you're not that far in the timeline behind them. You have the, have the suppliers said that this is possible. That's what our tender asked for, and that's what our tenders come back with. And this is the power of government doing this. The private sector, when they tender, and even a government business when it tenders, often looks for the cheapest and fastest path to market. What we've said is, no, guys, we're not going to compromise on this. We want 100% hydrogen. You ought to be part of this, you know, this project that's already got FID. We've already got final investment decision. That's done. We're doing it. The money is there. If you want to be part of it and you want to be part of the new market, you've got to provide us a generator that can operate entirely on hydrogen. And mm. I am satisfied that the market can provide that to us. So your preferred tenderers have been named um, today as um, ATCO, um, part of a massive global engineering and, and, and gas, industrial gas group, and BOC Linda. Why were these two chosen over, I think there was 29 competing com proposals? Well, the thing about, um, first, first things, first principles, I mean, 
elected members of government are at arm's length for these procurement decisions. We ultimately make the final decision on a recommendation. But what the, the procurement team will tell us is that the ATCO Bok Linde um, uh, bid was the one that gave us a comprehensive um, start to finish operations, comprehensive. Most of our other tenders weren't able to be as comprehensive. There is a long history of management of gas plants. There's a long history of already building grid-scale electrolysers by BIC Linde. They've got a good engineering arm. Uh, there's been existing infrastructure here in South Australia. ACCO, for example, have got a 60-year history in South Australia. BOC, the same. BOC at the steelworks in Wyala, ACCO at Osborne, and through their um, modular hut building for the mining industry. They've been very, very large here in South Australia. So the companies that we know, they've offered a start-to-finish comprehensive package, and they have the engineering expertise globally to do this. I mean, in fact, I think... Uh, Linde BOC have about, oh, I think about 400 megawatts of electrolyzers across Europe and Asia already under operation, with the largest being 200 megawatts in Germany. So they, they've done it before. They've got the engineering capacity and they can do it quickly. So I'm I am pretty comfortable that the, they are the best uh, the best uh, best pick of the lot. Now the um, the timelines have slipped a bit. I think originally there was a hope that this announcement would be made in the September quarter, even as early as July. I noticed in the press release today that you're now talking about an early 2026 um, start up for these projects um, instead of December 2025. I mean, is this kind of like any major new first of its type project um, timeline slip of inevitably? I like to uh, under promise, under promise and over deliver. So. The, the the timeline in first first Q1 of 2026 is that I think we can probably exceed that, but we're giving ourselves a bit of time. This is pretty comprehensive, but we'll know more at the end of the early contractor in, um, involvement uh, stage that we're in now, where the proponents are doing the detailed engineering design and the detailed work. I'm pretty comfortable about the beginning of this, you know, end of 2025, beginning of 2026, but... Given we're in a political climate where you've got to give drop dead dates, uh, and given the the process has taken so long because it is a complicated piece of procurement, we want to get it right. We've given ourselves just a little bit extra time just to make sure we can meet the timelines. Can I just clarify something about the generator? Um, you said then that the government will own it and operate it. It, it, it. Did I get that right? And have you been told then that the five hundred and ninety three million dollars that you are providing in state funding? Is enough to be build both the generator and the electrolyzer. Will, will the government also own the electrolyzer? We'll own both. Um, obviously, the early contractor engagement is all about making sure we can finalise those costs. The budgets we've set is five ninety three. That's unchanged. I'm confident we can we can build this. The question for us will be at the end of the early contractor involvement is the the, the type of equipment we'll be using. That'll better inform our budget, but I'm comfortable currently at 593. If that changes, that changes. But currently, I'm very, very comfortable with that number sits. Okay. And they're going to be built at Wyala. Why Wyala? That is an excellent question, which I've been hoping you get to, because I want to explain to, to your listeners a very important reason why we chose Wyala. Wyala is an industrial city. Um, it has uh, uh, the only integrated steelworks in the country, that is iron ore deposits, and it makes structural steel and rail line. It has the best magnetite reserves anywhere in the world. And 
there are a lot of complexities to exporting hydrogen. A lot of complexities, a lot of cost. And it's all about beneficiating other economies rather than our own. My view is this, is that steelworks, steelmaking, is not going anywhere. There's no future economy or um, structural replacement for structural steel that I can see coming onto the market anytime soon. It makes up between 9 and 14% of the world's carbon emissions. It needs to be de- decarbonized. It's a hard-to-abate industry. I believe that our magnetite, which is exactly the right quality for direct reduction iron and for electric arc furnaces, that we can replace coking coal with hydrogen. We can beneficiate a product. Instead of just exporting ore, we can decarbonize iron. And then you're exporting green iron. And when you're exporting green iron, it's already a decarbonized product. The demand for a decarbonized magnetite iron ore product will be huge internationally. So our aim here is to add complexity to our economy, add value to our ore here, create jobs here. And that's why we chose Wyala, because of where it is, let alone the vast renewable resources, renewable resources to the west of Wyala on the Air Peninsula. We've been mapping that for the last five years. We think there are some of the best wind and solar resources there anywhere in the world. They are close to where we want to produce hydrogen. It'll give the opportunity for us to give scale. We've just passed the first stage of our Hydrogen Renewable Energy Act, which sort of collapses all the approvals for renewable energy from cradle to grave within one piece of legislation and one minister, me, which would mean that will incentivise and be able to regulate a lot better the production of renewable energy throughout the throughout South Australia. So that's why we chose Wyala, because of the proximity to the sort of symbiotic materials that you need to actually create a rejuvenation of industrial applications based on, re- on renewable energy. Because what I don't want our transformation to be about is just replacing the grid, just greening the grid. That's not enough. I want... Well- that's right. Well, we've always been talking about, or people have been, people like Roscoe, I know, have been talking about sort of green industries, and it's not just sort of exporting green solar and wind, it's talking about exporting green products, which is as your green iron, as you're talking about. Absolutely. Because otherwise, I mean, look, let's face it, it is now common practice. We all know how to decarbonise a grid. You remove the fossil fuels and you replace them with renewable energy. Uh, and, you know, some countries are going down the nuclear path to decarbonise. Others are going down a path of wind and solar like we are. Uh, and others are choosing wind, solar and hydrogen. But my view is the bigger marketplace for us is the rejuvenation of our industrial applications and advanced manufacturing and using renewable energy. That's what the smarts are. Now, this country has built a great standard of living exporting raw ore around the world, but that can change. And I think it would, be, it would be a lot faster. I mean, I'm prepared to bet that we will export a green product like, like iron before we ever export hydrogen. That's interesting. And just to clarify, just something you said earlier, talking about magnetite, that's actually a type of iron ore, which is actually, as you said, was, was, was suited, is suited to the direct reduction process, which is kind of, you know, the different way of making, of, of making steel. Um, and you talked about the massive resources of wind and solar to the west of Wyala. I'm presuming you've got no shortage of project developers lining up there? They are. Uh, and it's been in a sort of disorderly way over the last four years, but... Um what the Hydro Renewable Energy Act was laid down some order and regulation over the top of it. 
there are a lot of people who've got bilateral agreements with partial leaseholders or um, who are promising to develop things and going through the Development Act, but there's no real timelines. I want to treat the development of renewable energy much the way we treat the development of petroleum geothermal technologies and, and mining. You bid for a, a, a tenement, a block of land that has an amazing resource. There's a value to that resource. I want to see work plans. I want to see minimum levels of expenditure on developing that renewable energy. I want to see approvals done in advance for heritage and Aboriginal approvals, native title and Indigenous land use agreements put in place before anything starts. It's adding an order and a regulatory process over the top so it's done properly. And if we do get tyre kickers, or we do get capital investment funds that are just simply doing very, very cheap bilateral agreements to lock up land and keep anyone else out of those renewable zones, that we can intervene and say, I'm sorry, like a mining lease, you haven't delivered on what you promised, you're out. And we go back out to the market again. So it's actually professionalising the application of renewable energy like a proper commodity that it should be. The way you would treat a molecule of gas or a molecule or a, or, or a tonne of, of coal is how we should be treating the sun and the wind. Not in extracting royalties, but in making sure that if you get access to land that's got the best solar resources in the world, you better develop it. And if you don't, we'll be asking you to move on. Um, what is the potential then for South Australia? Because I think in the past, um, well, we've talked about 100% renewables um, by 2030. We're obviously going to, you're obviously going to move well past that well before then. And I think the number that's been bandied around before is 500% renewables, which I just guess means the amount of wind and solar that you're producing for exports or whatever, you know, multiplied by the size of the grid or the local state demand. So, I mean, how are you seeing that? You've got about, what, probably three gigawatts now of wind solar, we're not counting rooftop solar, in, in South Australia. You're at 70% average over the last year. You're aiming for 100%. I mean, is there a gigawatt number in your head? Is there a 500%, 600% number in your head? Um, where can we get to? I think we'll, we'll easily get to 100, easily. And then the question for us is, what's, what's next? Because the, the truth is, we're limited by who we can export it to, unless we have industrial applications here. I suspect the next big leap forward will be the behind the meter investments, the vertically integrated investments into hydrogen plants or industrial applications. Just today, for example, the Prime Minister announced that um, the tariff war with China on wine could be coming to an end. South Australia, is a, a, we, we, ha we have about 90% of those wine exports to China. From, they equate to all of Australia's exports. But we have, that's an industry we have not yet decarbonised because the glass bottles that the wine is put in, which is the ultimate advanced manufacturing, you know, taking a berry and turning it into grange is remarkable advanced manufacturing. But the bottle is still very, very carbon intensive. How do we decarbonise those products? Now, to decarbonise glass... Is it a behind-the-meter investment or a from-the-grid investment that will lower those, 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 um, those costs? I suspect it's going to be behind-the-meter, so I think we will see dramatic gigawatt-scale behind-the-meter investments in South Australia because of our industrial applications. But there will also be gigawatt-scale investment to meet grid demands in New South Wales and Victoria, especially given the social license issues of Victorian and New South Wales communities are encountering with the rollout of new transmission lines, new distribution lines, and just just the towers, the wind towers and the solar arrays. 
So I think you see a lot of that investment here in South Australia. So to be entirely frank, renewable energy is the boom of the future. And the capital costs of that are coming down fast. And people are looking for safe jurisdictions to park their investment. And South Australia is by far, in my opinion, the safest. Are you running um, into the same social licence issues that you just mentioned that's happening in Victoria, sort of New South Wales and Queensland? And if not, why not? I think it's, it's 20 years of cold, hard experience. People seeing the benefits of the renewable energy, the, the multiple land use framework we've, we've had in place for 20 years. We've been seeing it and doing it for a long time. I think that, that helps us. I think also a bit fortuitously, a lot of our renewable resources is in, is in land that is unoccupied. Uh, which is also close to transmission and infrastructure, so we're lucky in that respect. But then again, I would argue that you know Western Australia were lucky with their iron ore, and Queensland were lucky with their coal back when it wasn't dangerous, and New South Wales were lucky with its resources. We're lucky that our renewable resources are where they are, and we have got a, a, a population that is on board for our change. So that won't mean that there aren't you know unique situations where there are some social license issues, but by and large, those here have been settled. Mm. You mentioned the new transmission line. There's the Project Energy Connect, which is going from Robertstown into Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. Um, you were never a great fan of an additional link from South Australia, um, but this thing's being built now and it'll be ready in a couple of years. Are you kind of used to the idea and it's a bit of a fait accompli and just deal with it? It's over now. I'm not a big fan of it because um, it's connecting South Australia. But the, the myth about this is that it unlocks vast amount of renewable energy from South Australia to New South Wales. The truth is, it was built by our opponents to bring coal into South Australia. And I thought it would stifle um, the behind-the-meter industry. Now, we'll wait and see. Will it stabilise the grid? Absolutely. But we are connecting to jurisdictions that are going through a transformation that we went through 10 years ago. And with all the instability that comes with it. So we'll see how Project Energy Connect goes. It's costing a lot more than we were told it would cost, but Look, in the end, interconnection is not a bad thing. It's just the order. And, and my view was is that South Australia at the time wasn't ready for more interconnection. We had more work to do for our renewable resources and our storage, make sure we were okay. Um, but it is what it is now. It's done. Uh, and we'll take full advantage of, of it when we can. I just hope it has no detrimental impact on the state. Mm. The other major thing that's happening at the moment is the capacity investment scheme. I think the start of the tender, 600 megawatts, four hours of storage has been rolled out in conjunction with Victoria and the federal governments. Kind of seems quite an interesting sort of um, um, model there. I think 200 megawatts reserved for South Australia, 200 megawatts for Victoria and 200 megawatts to the best, <laughs> wherever the next best idea comes from. Um, this, of course, is designed to help fill that reliability gap that AEMO has identified for around about 26, 27, and I presume that the hydrogen power plants are also going to help address that as well. It, it certainly will. I mean, I'd like to see... I mean, hydrogen Head Start could be another way of us expanding the, the level of hydrogen investment here in South Australia. The Capacity Investment Scheme is a very, very good scheme. South Australians, Australia needs to work out that we need to pay for capacity that could sit idle, that could, could sit unserved, and that could mean having to pay more. We're going to have to overbuild to meet our demands. So uh, I think it's a good scheme. I'm, I'm encouraging South Australian companies to apply uh, and investors here. I, I think... Grid-scale batteries now have become the norm, and it goes back to that social licence issue and that acceptance of renewable energy. We were mocked when we announced the 
the Hornsdale Tesla big battery. You know, we had the, the former prime ministers calling it a tourist attraction and, you know, all the usual sort of rhetoric that comes with trying something new. It's now the template for every jurisdiction and now part of a template for a national scheme and no one's blinking at it. And that's just another example of what we're doing here with hydrogen. I think that'll be the same. Yeah, I think you know. I remember seeing your picture um, at that famous uh, press conference uh, where Jay Weatherall gate crashed uh, Andy Vasey and Josh Frydenberg and, um, and, a, and a massive put down. Where's the long duration storage then for South Australia going to come? Is it going to be from hydrogen? I mean, pumped hydro, there's about five or six projects that were going to be developed and they seem to just disappear into thin air um, if that's what happens to pumped hydro projects. Um, or is it going to be some of this thermal storage that um, others are still putting forward for Port Augusta? Well, if I can expand on that just a little bit, I agree with you. I mean, where is the long duration storage, which is what the Commonwealth government's attempting to incentivise with its capacity investment scheme. But you go back two years, the world's faced with a global pandemic. The whole world bands together to try and find a solution to this and come up with a vaccine, and we did. Where is the Manhattan Project? Where is the Operation Warp Speed? to find long-duration stories to help the world decarbonise. Why aren't governments around the world, not just in Australia, the United States, Canada, all of Europe, all of Asia, paying our top scientists to go away and find out how do we unlock um, uh, long-duration grid storage? Because what we ultimately are doing now is leaving it up to the market. We're leaving it up to the investors and the risk-takers to say, all right, you guys out, you guys go out, we'll give you some subsidy, but you find us the answer to this. In my experience, it needs to be government that does this work. And it's, it, it's not happening at the pace and scale that we need. It needs to be done faster. And I think it's going to be hydrogen because that is the fastest way to do long, 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 grid, long, long, scale, um, long, long duration storage. But ultimately, there's got to be something else. And the question is, well, what is it? And why aren't we doing more of it? And unfortunately, in South Australia, we have everything we, we need for um, pumped hydro except water in hills. So, you know... <laughs> seems to be two key elements. <laughs> yeah, the two key elements are missing here in the state. Um, but um, there needs to be a breakthrough because we can't just, we can't just all think that nuclear energy is going to save us because small modular reactors are a myth that are potentially decades away. Um, I, I have not seen anything on the horizon that is going to give us that long 12 hours that is commercial. And it, it needs government investment, it needs government direction, and it needs sort of a national push across the globe to try and get to the answer here, I think. Well, one of the problems has been when the government has become involved, it's done vanity projects such as the Snowy 2.0 scheme. Yes, which is costing a, a lot of money. A lot of money. Just one final thing before we um, end the conversation. Um, offshore wind, that's the big new thing happening in eastern states and particularly in Victoria. Um, there was one uh, renewable zone which proposed overlapping Victoria and South Australia, but the South Australia government sounds like it's saying no at the moment. Um, can you just um, elaborate on the reasons behind that? Uh, we're not opposed to offshore wind. Um, we're surprised that it's becoming an option in, in, on a, in a country with a land mass like ours, given the additional costs. Um, but nevertheless, I, I, I'm not opposed. We have some issues down there with some rock lobster fishers who are worried about their ability to move in and out throughout season. And most of the power would have been used for Victorian purposes rather than South Australian purposes. That was a, the logic of the objection by the Department for Primary Industry and Resources. But um, 
my view is, is that offshore wind is coming because of its different profile of wind and potentially um, much larger ability to have longer, longer form penetration. However, the costs associated with it, I think, are on current levels, three or four to one compared to onshore. Uh, so I think you'll see in South Australia a lot more onshore than offshore. I think places like Victoria and New South Wales, where there are social licence issues, is where the offshore stuff is being pushed. And I'm not sure that's going to fix that. Mm. Can I just want to ask, ask one final question, just about cost to consumers, because we talk about renewables being lower cost than the fossil fuels, but we get to see that probably in retail bills, because these things take time to work through. We kind of had the energy crisis last year, which actually pushed bills much higher. Um, you've talked about the fossil generators and the peaking generators trying to get maximum profits out of a smaller period in time, and you hope that that can be diffused by the new state-owned hydrogen plant. So when might um, electricity bills actually fall down to the levels where people can be convinced that really renewables will deliver cheaper power over the long term? It's, it's the gap, Giles. It's the gap between the sun and the wind blowing and shining and firming 100% power. And the gap is what's pushing up prices, not renewables. Renewables are plummeting prices. And until we're able to bridge that gap with long duration storage, like hydrogen or some sort of thermal storage or whatever it might be, then you'll see prices come down. But prices are still being set in this country and globally by fossil fuels. And fossil fuels are what are setting prices and that's why power prices are expensive. We need to decouple ourselves from those international shocks and from fossil fuels and that's going to be technology. Technology and government investment. So it's coming and it's coming soon. And the, 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 the more the penetration you reach a tipping point where plummet, prices plummet, and we're getting close to it. Hmm. Tom Kitson-Turnis, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast, and um, good, luck with this, um, good luck with this hydrogen plan. Thank you very much. Good to talk to you again. And that was uh, Energy Minister Tom Kitson-Turnis from South Australia. Um, David? Pretty interesting stuff. I guess South Australia's probably got as much reason as any other state to go um, first and hard in green hydrogen. Um, I was particularly interested in what Tom Kutz and Tonus said about um, absorbing the excess renewables. I think we saw this this week. We've seen you know, numerous times when South Australia simply cannot export or its available renewable capacity, or its potential renewable capacity, um, the ability to sort of um, do something about those high-priced events um, that often happen in the evening peaks when rooftop solar um, falls, and also there's this opportunity in exports, green iron through Wyello with the magnetite and, and, and what have you. He acknowledged the fact that there's some scepticism about the hydrogen potential, but thought that they really had no choice but to go for it. Well, yes, so it's a $500 million uh, subsidy at least. Um, 593, and, actually. Okay, so let's say 600 million, excuse me, and that's, that's now. Uh, and so if that's what you need to do to undercut gas in the evenings, you know, that's quite expensive. That's, that's, if that's the reason for it, which of course it's not. $600 million is pretty cheap in the scale of subsidies that are going around the place these days with your barambas and offshore wind in Victoria and uh, your snowies. So, 
you know, uh, I'm getting old. Uh, uh, a billion dollars isn't a billion dollars anymore, is it, Charles? Well, it is, actually. <laughs> but it just doesn't sound like it doesn't buy as much as it used to anyway. But look, I thought it was pretty interesting. I thought um, um, Tom's comments, um, one, about the um, sort of filling the gap, filling the reliability gap by 2627, the role that this um, hydrogen power plant could do in that, um, the, the constant riddle for um, long-duration storage, and um, you never was a great fan well, of... you know, sorry, just, just to, if it is going to replace long-duration storage, by definition, it's going to crowd out long-duration storage. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You know, if you want to create a market for long-duration storage, uh, as the federal government's doing with a capacity plan, uh, go on. Yeah, no. Look, I, I, I think he, he was more or less talking about the sort of the riddle of trying to solve long duration storage. Not that this one would, um, this this one might help, but I think he sort of says that that there is an issue of having long duration storage of twelve hours or more. So um, I don't think he was trying to pretend that this was actually going to do that. And the other thing is that in terms of soaking up the solar and what happens to the gas is that I think Project Energy Connect, although its capacity is a little bit limited. Uh, nevertheless, will have uh, quite a big influence in that the uh, uh, gas will be available to go to New South Wales from time to time. Uh, and also, uh, New South Wales coal, uh, to the extent it's still operating, will be able to undercut the gas in the evening in South Australia uh, in the same way that uh, uh, brown coal goes into South Australia from Victoria at the moment. So. You know, there's a few things playing out there, uh, and this hydrogen thing, if it comes in on time, which it probably won't, uh, is pretty much at the same time as Project Energy Connect. So, as ever, there's a few moving balls. There's a few moving balls, um, but I think there's also a lot um, that they're planning with the actual green hydrogen part anyway. So, look, we shall see, and it was um, fascinating to um, hear from um, Minister Kutsantonis. Uh, just on a couple of other things going around, the AEMO um, quarterly energy, energy dynamics report, um, a few interesting bits there. One, just basically confirmation that we know that the prices came down very sharply uh, in the September quarter, 71% um, below this time last year, a lot more renewables, a lot more records, uh, rooftop solar having a particularly interesting impact on the grid, sort of knocking average operational demand by around two gigawatts. So, is... Giles, this, this is one of the big unresolved issues. There's a couple of them that we're going to mention tonight. And one of the biggest ones is, you, you know, has AEMO really got its strategy around integrating rooftop solar with the rest of the grid correct? Uh, I think there's a massive uh, discussion that's still not been held about that, about the right way to do it whether it's virtual power plants, whether it's uh, AEMO forcing uh, producers off-line, off off uh, whether it um, uh, could be done with tariffs, whether it's household batteries. I just don't think we've had enough sensible discussion about this topic yet. Well, there was the release of Project Edge last week, which was a AEMO report, which kind of talked about some of the virtual power plant things and some of the edge of grid issues. So it's I think they're like working two or, towards two or three it. Or, two or three or four hundred households uh, in, in, in Victoria, and I don't think there was any major conclusion came out of it when I read that report, but go on. <laughs> 
Well, um, look, I think we're working slowly towards the um, uh, the solution. Um, we actually had uh, Gabriel Kuiper on the uh, who we've had on this podcast um, on a webinar last week um, with some others talking about. Um, the issue of distributed energy resources or consumer energy resources and just pointing out there is just so much more work to be done, as, uh, as you said. Now, David, you've also got some observations about the origin bid from Well, uh, again, um, I've been as looking closely, Giles, uh, at what's going to come up in this, uh, the next version of the ISP, you know, which is the foundational document as far as planning document, and we already in the electricity statement of opportunities, which AEMO produces every year at least, uh, it does it updates its electricity demand forecasts. And you, you have to be a somewhat of a spreadsheet person to actually work your way through it. They don't make it that easy to forecast. But when you do work your way through that, what you will f- see is that they forecast uh, grid-delivered electricity to households to on a net basis go to negative by about 2047. So it's about 42 terawatt hours now, about which is about uh, 20% of total NEM uh, supply uh, from utilities. Uh, and it's going to go to zero and then actually slightly negative. And at the same time, we're going to get rooftop solar is going to grow and grow and grow to well above this 40 terawatt hours and EV demand is going to increase. Now, uh, and finally, to complete another thing, um, obviously household gas demand is going to decline. We don't know quite how quickly, but it could be quite quickly if rules like those in Victoria in the ACT, uh, uh, and they're the big gas-consuming state, Victoria, become more widespread. So the um, gentailers at the moment make uh, most of their retailing profits from selling to households. It's not where all the volume is, but they make about three or four or five times uh, per megawatt hour more from selling to a household than they do from selling to the likes of BHP. Uh, And if those volumes are going to be declining and have to be replaced uh, by a model that somehow incorporates households and virtual power plants and, you know, household batteries and, I don't know, taking away EV charging or something, uh, it's, you know, it's quite risky, especially as at the same time, they're going from being as vertically integrated as they are today to being less vertically integrated. Anyway, Giles, it's a, it's probably a dull technical topic, but to me, it, it's quite interesting <laughs> as to what the uh, Gentailer profit model is going to be. Uh, looking forward. Well, I don't think it's dull. In, I don't think it's dull at all. I mean, it's basically you're talking about a fundamental reshaping, not just of the grid, but also the way that the whole utility business works. I mean, basically a major profit centre, and I know all about that. I sell my solar at some ridiculously low price and buy it back um, for some ridiculously high price at the moment, and um, uh, and I think many others do as well. I mean, that's only just really part of the equation. But as you say. <laughs> Um, negative demand from households is an extraordinary thing when you think about it, and um, it could be upon us within a decade or just over a decade. That's 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 about the size of things. Of course, solar is never going to be supplying the power directly overnight, but if household batteries or uh, EV batteries supplying households become, you know, pretty widespread, then uh, it is really going to make the the household sector use the utility sector. Uh, as much more of an insurance product, if you see what I mean. They'll be doing most of it themselves, supplying and consuming, and just, but there'll always be times when we, when we need the grid. Is this why the utilities are suddenly making a big noise about that, how they really care about the consumer in their most recent profit updates? 
Well, I think they do care about making money from the consumer and uh, virtual power plants. Another little tidbit that showed up in the Grant's annual report was that Origin's um, VPP, which I think is the biggest in the country, maybe AGL's is the biggest, but it's it's uh, it's uh, it's quite a sizable power plant now, like in the hundreds of megawatts. I don't want to say it's a gigawatt yet, but maybe it is, but still losing money, which is quite interesting to me. Uh <laughs> Uh, um, so what is it, how profitable ultimately will it be? Well, exactly. I think we're probably seeing the same thing with the um, with the legacy car makers, just to sort of go off on a complete tangent. Um, looking at Tesla's results last week, I mean, margins sort of crunched and sort of um, and profits down, but still so far ahead of all legacy car makers who are still making money out of building internal combustion engine cars, but can't make a cent out of building electric cars. Um, and um, probably a similar thing when you're trying to sort something new or you're actually trying to transition and turn this little huge ship around. So, um, yeah, interesting things. David, I think that's about enough. Um, thank you um, very much for joining me again at short notice. Um, once again, repeating that we will be at All Energy. We've got a booth down there, so please drop in and say hello. Um, don't mind me if I sit on my laptop and typing away, writing another story. But um, I'll try and be conversational as I can. And um, thanks very much to uh, State um, Energy Minister Tom Kutzen-Turners for joining us. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And thanks for listening. And uh, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.